goddess. She has memory. She has life. She has a way of being that is sacred, that is a part of us. And when she is sturdy, when she is poisoned and turned, we are as well. Our spirits are hurt, but not gone. Frontline communities in Washington state have a voice. At the 2022 UN Climate Conference in Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt, the Just Transition Alliance will join with the It Takes Roots Coalition in a collective effort to ensure that the various policies being proposed at COP27 are rooted in justice for workers, frontline communities, and the environment. In collaboration with Rainier Avenue Radio, Environmental Justice Coalition Front and Center is producing this local to global report on the front lines. I'm Edgar Franks of Familias Unidas por la Justicia, an independent farmworker union and front and center member organization based in Skagit Valley with over 500 members across Washington state. And this is Crash the Cop 27 with Jill and Edgar from On the Front Lines. Shout out to Rainier Avenue Radio. Special thanks to Tony B and his team at Rainier Avenue Radio for broadcasting our frontline community reporting. And shout out to Environmental Justice Coalition Front End Centered for producing this local to global report on the front lines. This is Crash the Cop 27 with Jill and Edgar. I just hope that uh, some of the audio and videos uh, make it so people can kind of listen in to some of the sights and sounds of of the cop. Yeah, yeah it's really hard to explain a lot of it. Sometimes you just have to see it, uh, just how wild it is. So I'll try to get a little bit more from like the different pavilions. And then in 2018, we passed another statute, a law, a law in Ontario for recognizing the rights of nature recognizing that we are not just water protectors and land defenders, but that we are nature. Our land herself speaks that into our hearts and spirits. Because the air that they're buying selling their stupid carbon trading programs demands that we speak for those without the same voice of the same languages we speak. However, anytime these plants were unionized, they had a better chance of having uh, more plants in there. And that they are, uh, these measures are made sure that they are lived out and the workers are protected because they're under a union contract. We still have some challenges. We, we know that coal, coal is an issue, right? And so there has been a lot of coal mines that have closed over the years. We call them abandoned mines, right? Um, now, the, the, when the government decided that they were going to close some of these mines, as, as uh, Jose just said, when the mines are closed, they're supposed to be um, revitalized into its original land, right? Into green space. So there is money to revitalize this land. However, from the, youth, from the uh, Mine Workers Union that I was talking to Executive Vice President um, last night, James Gibbs, a lot of these mines that are abandoned and supposed to be closed, what's happening is oil and gas 
minds are going through there. Instead of closing the minds, they're closed, they're no more producing uh, coal, but now gas and oil lines, wells are being running through those same lines through mountains. And this is even happening in um, Virginia, in the state of Virginia, which is very close to me. And so instead of closing, and we have clean energy, now we have oil and gas. We're coal mines. Now we got oil and gas lines running through there. Uh, the thing about that is who's regulating that? Who's regulating that? Um, who's making sure that we don't have gas leaks in that? Because they don't have you. And so what I would say is that when we talk about uh, we want clean energy, we want clean air, we want clean water, we need to also think about, we have communities that have been impacted, those communities that look like me, but we also have workers that are impacted when we close those um, plants, right? When we close those uh, sources of what we had with energy, coal, right, and gas. And so we should think about those workers. Where are those workers? Most of them, a majority of them, people of color. Um, you know, we had to fight uh, to make sure that the mine workers that lost all those jobs, jobs, generations of jobs within the mine, that they got their pension, right, and their health care benefits. We had to do that and go to the federal government to ensure that those 250,000 workers can continue to get pension and benefits because now their industries are no longer in existence. And so, and then let me just mention a uh, two more. I want to mention um, my union. I'm out of the United Food Commercial Workers Union. And so uh, we represent mostly grocery workers. Uh, we met, uh, represent meat packing and food processing and some healthcare workers. Uh, we have 1.2 million workers throughout the U.S. and that includes Canada. Um, in the industry of the United Food Commercial Workers Union, we have some workers that are transitioning into this, into the United States, and going transitioning into our meat packing and food processing. That's a transition to us, okay? Uh, a lot of these workers are undocumented workers, or some would say immigrant workers. Uh, these workers want to make a living because, of course, a lot of them are moved from the, their land because they lose their their source of income. So we have workers that a lot of times they fear just going to work from being raided by ICE, um, which happened in 2019 in Mississippi when we had a 606, six, 660 workers uh, taken off their jobs on the first day of school in Mississippi. And so that's a transition to us. And then um, lastly, I would talk about uh, the retail and how retail is transitioning into the digital world. Those are workers that had those grocery jobs um, in the grocery stores, and now you have the self-scanners. That's a transition for work. That's a, a, a work where a majority of African-American and other workers of color, we were in the grocery industry, industry that I come out of. Um, and so that's transitioning into digital. Now those are jobs. And so I would ask, as we, uh, uh, as we advocate for a cleaner environment, that we not forget the workers. And we advocate for these jobs that's coming out the infrastructure bill, that those be good union paying jobs. Because when they're good union paying jobs, 
we know that they're going to have the right salary, the right protection, and the right health care. And so I'll leave it at that. Thank you, sister. That was really... And I really appreciate you reminding us that we know that transition, that change is inevitable, but justice is not. So it behooves us, both workers, unions, and the communities, uh, the groups organizing the frontline communities, to ensure that justice is at the center of all conversations with change. With that, I'd like to uh, uh, invite our brother, Norman Rogers, from the United Steelworkers 675. And I really want to say it's been a real treat to have your brother Norman you know, accompanying us with other uh, uh, brothers and sisters from the labor movement, because Norman's union represents workers on the front lines, one of the most critical front lines in the oil and gas sector uh, of change. I won't go into the details, but I know that we have confidence, uh, just as we did with the OCAW, that United Steelworkers provide one of the most, uh, you know, inspiring, you know, leadership uh, roles within the House of Labor. So over to you, brother. Thank you for that, Amanda. Uh, good morning, everyone. I am going to give you a second to prepare yourselves. I have a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so one of the things that I want to talk about is uh, the front line, because there's a lot of different definitions of front lines. This is Huntington Beach, California, 100 years ago. And one of the front lines there was the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Things have changed now. Back in this time, Huntington Beach was known as Oil City. And you can see why. Much of Southern California, Huntington Beach, Long Beach, looked like it's covered in oil barrels. Uh, there's a city in Los Angeles County named El Segundo. El Segundo means the second. The reason it's called that is because that's where Standard Oil opened up their second refinery in the state of California. That's how deep it runs, how deep oil runs and uh, loss of revenue. Right? This is Detroit. These were all the same, the same houses at different times. And this is what we saw as uh, a result of the auto industry contracting. We've also seen this when steel contracted, the steel uh, industry contracted, when coal mining went away, logging went away. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, when they started closing their inventory bases, we saw the same type of thing happen across the nation. Uh, this is another transition. This is another front line. And it's a front line for people that are for our firefighters, for police departments. It's a front line for folks at Pizza Hut because now you don't have anybody having any coming by for a pizza party after a soccer match. And as these communities go into that downward spiral, let's say where it matters the most and where it makes the most sense and it does the most good is that the folks that live downstream from the refineries, it's what implementation looks like for them. The folks that work at the refineries, it's what implementation looks like for them. It's the folks, while we have great targets for the state of California and greenhouse gas emissions, the moves we're making in California are affecting people that make mufflers and make catalytic converters in other states. And so they see what's happening in California and know that their jobs are going away because you don't need a catalytic converter for an electric vehicle. So we need to check in with them and ask ourselves what is implementation together mean 
with all stars. And I'm going to leave it at that. Those are the basics. Uh, we need folks to not suffer. We need to, there's two versions of doing the right thing that are at play right now. One version is, and it's the version that's been not for the last 200 years, is that folks have been able to put a rope over their head and food on the table. Another version of the right thing is that we meet our greenhouse gas emissions. We meet our targets for that. And they would seem to be opposite paths, but we have to find a way forward that brings those two things together. If we do the right thing for the environment, if we do the right things for our workers. And our, and our yeah, right. Large sections of Jackson has been large sections of Jackson for about 30 years. And that type of decline is accelerating in my community. I want everybody to understand that. And what made me switch is that I thought I would be remiss to not share a story about the deep crisis, not only in my community, but the deep crisis of the system. In August, our city, the water system collapsed. Okay, I want you all to understand that it collapsed. It was done so deliberately, and it was done so on account of generations of intentional neglect. Now, let's speak to the intentionality. The governor, Tate Reeves, I will call his name, decided that rather than the, the communities in and around the reservoir, in Ridgeland, which is in Madison County, rather than being kind of directly impacted by some temporary flooding, that he would just kind of inundate the overall system and send all of the excess water from the, the tremendous amount of rain we had in July and August to send that downstream to Jackson. Okay? Now, this little section of Ridgeland is some of the most expensive real estate in the state of Mississippi, right? Madison County, per average, is the, the richest county in the state of Mississippi. Jackson, which is primarily in Hines County, is one of the poorest. So I want you to do some math on how the political decision was made as to what the flood and why the flood. Now, this water crisis that we've been facing, we're in a pretty serious dilemma. We exist in a state that will not give any substantive resources to the municipality. On the lines of race, I'm not going to beat around the bush, on the lines of race, it will not give our municipality any critical resources. And I'm using municipality very critical because I want you all to understand Jackson is the political capital of the state of Mississippi. And folks are, these folks in particular, are letting it basically rot from the inside, but then blaming our political leadership for decades of divesting funds and removing capital from the community to just watch it collapse. Okay. Now we're in a situation where the, the state government won't give resources to, to repair our water system. And then on a federal level, basically we are fundamentally blocked right now. 
Now, there are a couple of things that the Biden administration can do and is doing. But in terms of major appropriation of resources, that fundamentally is going to take an act of Congress. And given the split nature of this very ineffective Congress that we have had is the worst one which is coming in, we can basically kind of guarantee that there will be no federal resources coming in to repair our water system. Now, I want you to understand the, the impact of this because Jackson, Mississippi, let me just cite some figures. In 2010, there were roughly 200,000 people in the city. More in reality, they just weren't counted. But what the census, census is counting, 200,000 people. The 2020 census says we have 160. So we've already lost 40,000 people by their own record. What do you think will happen? What choices do you think families will have to make when you cannot turn on the tap and know if you can trust it to bathe with, to drink with, to brush your teeth with, to cook with? Many people are going to have to start making some rational choices. I cannot stay here. Right? I cannot raise my family. Right? And that would be a rational choice. I'm citing all of this because like Flint, Michigan, I would argue, like the Navajo Reservation, we are a canary in the coal mine. And this is what I mean to the deep crisis of the system. If you just look at it politically, the stalemate means that nothing fundamentally can move except for what the markets want to move. Because the government is, in, is, is unable to make any deliberative decisions about the allocation of public goods and resources which then leaves all the primary dictation, even in the United States of America, to the private sector. The private sector don't like black people, don't like brown people, right? Let's be clear. So we cannot expect any largesse to come from them to deal with our situation. So that means the onus, good people, is on us at the end of the day to solve our own problems. And we can only do that, as Ananda was saying, with solidarity, building with each other, building community with each other, understanding each other, what we all need, what we all fear, and what are our solutions, which may be profoundly different, as Jose was saying, from community to community, right? Uh, that's not, our differences are not necessarily in contradiction. We need to understand that. Right, we have to respond to the circumstances put before us, and it may look different. The, the, the answer may look different in your community than it looks in mine. But if we can work in collaboration through democratic negotiation and discussion with each other, we can come up with the solutions that we all need. Like we have the capacity to do this. Humanity been doing this for quite some time. But I think that the last piece I want to get into is. There's a challenge to our imaginations that we really got to open up in terms of thinking what a just transition could be, particularly focusing on the just part of it, right? Part of what we have been trying to do in, in uh, cooperation, Jackson, is, is deal with this issue of the profound underemployment and unemployment in our community, which is pretty deep in Jackson. Okay? Uh, 
pretty deep in Jackson and recognizing that the private sector is not really coming with a bunch of good jobs in, in our community. Uh, and the jobs that they do bring in, they're lowering the standards. So what do I mean by that? Let me just give you an example. 20 miles up from there's the Canton uh, uh, Renault Nissan plant. Uh, and you would expect those to be you know, unionized jobs as they are in Detroit, as they are in South Africa, as they are in Japan. Or they are, oh, we try, and we're still trying. Folks still in fighting with. Um, it may take a little bit longer, but it's going to happen. I, I do fundamentally believe that. Um, but what they did in Mississippi was came in and employed folks under the, the national standard. And they negotiated that with the government. Right? And the government basically said, no, we don't want y'all paying union standard because other folks in Mississippi might get the idea that they also deserve a union wage. Right? So y'all can't do that here. Right? And we invited you here. You came here because the tab Hartley laws said that you would have to pay nobody anyway, basically, or unionize. So it was very clear why they came. We have to think, you know, how do we take the situation that we're in and build the alternatives based upon the resources that we have? And everywhere, even if we don't have any money, we have each other. That's the first thing that we have. We have each other, and we have to start relying upon it. I was, I, there's a lot more we're talking about. The brother gave me the minute about. I keep opening up my mouth. It's definitely going to be on the time. So I'm going to hit in there uh, and just say open our imaginations, reject the false solutions that are being promoted here. And there are plenty of them. Right? And most of this is a presentation of false solutions, uh, uh, truth be told. Uh, but going back to the analogy, I would follow the fisherman and his folks who've been there, right, for millennia. If I was to make a choice and decision, and I would encourage you to do the same. Thank you. You see that it might, they might have lead contaminants and heavy metal toxins in, for my grandchildren. It's just incredibly heartbreaking. And we know that the military legacy is that they, they, they bring toxins wherever they go, and then they don't have accountability to clean up. We see this in Okinawa. We see this in Hawaii with the Red Hook contamination, where a oil storage facility from World War II is currently leaking and contaminating the water on the bases and throughout the island of Oahu. They also bring the message that we need to be more mindful as a global community because the people in the Pacific are incredibly vulnerable to climate change. We're not only facing climate change, Threats, but also threats of militarization because our islands are always and have been between warring powers. So we need peace just as much as we need climate action. Climate action and human rights go hand in hand. And we need sovereignty in the Pacific. We need, as indigenous people, to stand with those who are questing sovereignty. I also want to uplift the places. Like in Saipan, where I currently live, when, when they were building the water facilities and they were building the infrastructure for water, they overtaxed the aquifer. And now all the water that runs through people's taps is salty. And they have to collect water, which is really beautiful from the rain. But it is just a, a, a thing that we have to constantly think about having fresh water. And, many, and especially when many people around the world take it for granted. So we're to all of these beautiful people defending water and defending life. 
want to continue to, to fight this fight because our future generations We're in a march down a pavilion led by the indigenous folks. reporting of COP27 is part of a collaboration with Rainier Avenue Radio and is also part of a new environmental justice podcast, On the Front Lines. The first season of On the Front Lines explores people's movements in the Philippines, cooperative farms, frontline community health in Washington, the dangers or false solutions such as nuclear energy and carbon markets, the promise of the Just Transition Framework, and a project celebrating the untold stories of Nikkei farmers in Bellevue. Ten episodes feature local and global guests, including frontline advocates, organizers, workers, filmmakers, artists, and more. Look for the podcast via website at frontandsummer.org or search for On the Front Lines, available now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Anyways, that's all for now. See you soon on Crash the Cop with Jill Negri.